KBLA Talk 1580, our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you with us in this hour. We're playing uh, some of the music of Tony Bennett, the incomparable Tony Bennett, throughout today's program. Uh, I mentioned in, in uh, the first hour, in case you've just tuned in, that I woke up this morning on a throwback Thursday, as we say in the social media space, uh, to Tony Bennett uh, posting uh, some photos of uh, himself and yours truly, and the maestro, Gustavo Dudamel, on the occasion of his uh, last appearance at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, and so uh, what a great way to wake up to Tony Bennett uh, posting and tweeting about you, <laughs> hanging out with you at the bowl. Uh, so uh, everybody's been telling me Tony Bennett posted about you this morning. So I, I'm in a Tony Bennett sort of mood today. And we're playing some of, uh, some of the great music of, uh, again, Tony Bennett. No voice like his ever. And uh, we celebrate his life and legacy. He'll be 97 in August. He's retired from the stage. He's earned that. Uh, but uh, his music still sounds as good as ever. Uh, in this hour, uh, the most important scholar activist in black history, W.B. Du Bois, believed that supporting the Allied cause during World War I would bring full citizenship and democratic change to African-Americans. Sadly, on this particular score, Du Bois, for all his brilliance, was wrong. He made a decision that would haunt him the rest of his life. He would seek both intellectual clarity and personal atonement uh, about that decision for more than two decades. In this hour, we'll speak with Brandeis University professor Chad L. Williams, author of a new book about Du Bois. Of course, Du Bois was the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. The book is called The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. And I am delighted to have Professor Chad L. Williams on this program. Professor Williams, how are you today, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me on, Tavis. Good to talk to you again. It's my great delight, man. Thank you for coming on. Looking forward to this hour. Uh, when you were last on our program, we knew this book was forthcoming, uh, and we promised then we'd have you back on when the book dropped. Uh, it's dropped. <laughs> and so we are delighted <laughs> to uh, uh, to have you on for the hour to talk about Du Bois. Before I get in, into the text and get into um, the First World War and all that you have written in this uh uh, shall I say, dense text. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious piece of scholarship, and I thank you for doing it. Uh, I know a lot of time and energy and effort went into writing this book um, about a part of Du Bois' um, life uh, and work and witness that we are, uh, quite, quite frankly, very unaware of. This part of his story yeah. we don't know so well, and so I'm always fascinated to learn more about, again, a great scholar, a great black scholar like Du Bois. But uh, let me start with a broad question, and we'll narrow our way. For you, um, why spend so much time with Du Bois as a person, as a scholar, as a fellow citizen, as an iconic um, American? Uh, what was it, what is it about Du Bois that drew your attention to him that you'd spend so many years, so much time researching and working on this part of his life? Yeah, again, thanks for having me on. Uh, when I was conducting research for what would eventually become my first book, Torchbearers of Democracy, and this was back when I was a graduate student in 2000, mm -hmm. um, I was doing research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I saw a curiously titled collection uh, labeled Du Bois World War I materials. Um, I had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. So I go to the library. I asked the librarian to see this collection. She returns with six microfilm reels, right? Um, and I'm kind of dating myself. I'm old <laughs> enough to still, to still use a microfilm yeah. uh, uh, machine. But I load the first reel, and I, and I see this manuscript, this 800-page manuscript 
by Du Bois on the black experience in World War I that he never finished and was never published. In addition to that, all of his research materials and the correspondence related to this project, and no historian had ever talked about it. I was just completely astounded. And really, from, from that moment, I was, I was obsessed <laughs> with, with this project and really committed to understanding why Du Bois spent so much time, 20 years, trying to write and ultimately not being able to finish what would have been one of his most significant works of history. Mm. Um, we'll get into that book uh, again, your book uh, about that in just a second. Uh, but again, broadly speaking, why did he spend uh, 20 years laboring on something that he never was able to bring forth? Yeah, that's that's the million-dollar question. Uh, du Bois was deeply affected by World War One. When the United States entered the war, he made the very controversial decision for African Americans to, to close ranks. He called for African Americans to put aside their special grievances and support the Allies, support their fellow white Americans uh, in fighting to make the world safe for democracy. He believed that the war was going to be a, 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 a transformative moment. Right, a, a pivotal moment in the history of, of modern democracy and African American civil rights, and he was wrong. And he spent over 20 years, really much of his uh, much of his life, trying to make sense of that decision, trying to trying to justify it, trying to make historical sense of it, but also trying to understand just what type of world this horrific uh, war uh, created. Yeah. Um, what's it? Let me let me, let me ask a personal question, uh, and we'll move forward here. What's it feel like uh, when you're researching one who you respect, uh, obviously as much as you respect uh, W.B. Du Bois, and you realize that that person, uh, uh, never mind all, all of the iconography, that person was wrong? Uh, I asked that question against the backdrop of the following. I, I, I'm a student of Dr. King. This audience knows that. Uh, and I recall many years ago when I first discovered a number of things that, in retrospect, King was wrong about. I'm like, right. wow, I, I never expected that Dr. King, this, this guy's my yep. hero, right? King was right about everything. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't human and divine. He's just human. He ain't, he ain't God. And so he's not right yeah. about everything. But there, there was a reckoning that I had to come to uh, and deal with when I discovered on a number of different fronts there were things, I think, in retrospect, in my own formulation, uh, that I think Dr. King, frankly, as much as I love him and adore him, that he was wrong about because he's not perfect. He, he just he's just he's just human. So what's it like when you when you're delving into a project where Du Bois himself realizes that he made a bad decision? Uh, but as a scholar, you have to bring that unfinished product to the rest of us. But at the epicenter of it is a decision that Du Bois made that he was just flat wrong about. How do, how do you how do you wrestle with that? Yeah, I think in many ways, uh, W.B. Du Bois is on the same level with Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of his stature, in terms of his significance to the black intellectual tradition, mm -hmm. to the broader uh, struggle for, for black freedom and justice in the United States and, and throughout uh, the world. Uh, du Bois uh, remains uh, one of my heroes, um, but he's fundamentally human. And yeah, that's yeah. really one of the uh, most powerful takeaways, I think, from uh, my book. We get to see Du Bois in all of his brilliance, all of his genius, but all of his frailties uh, as well. Uh, du Bois was someone who hoped that democracy would become a reality for black people. He put his hopes 
in the First World War, and he was gravely disappointed. And he spent much of his life trying to reckon with that disappointment and the weight of, of that disappointment, which ultimately resulted in him not being able to finish what would have been, as I said, one of his most significant works of history. Mm, here now, I'm thinking as you talk, it just came to me, um, another parallel between Du Bois and King. You've laid out a couple. You've laid out a couple already. Another parallel. There are those who will who will critique the work of Dr. King, and say that one of the mistakes that King made was that he was too, uh, how might I put it, enamored um, uh, with the American dream, uh, in, in, mm. enamored with what America was capable of. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there, there have been many who've critiqued him in that regard. Uh, I can tell you this about the King part. We'll come back to Du Bois. By the time King gets to the end of his life, we just commemorated the 55th anniversary of his assassination earlier this week on on, on, on Tuesday, as it were, uh, 55 years since they killed him. And I've told this story many times, but people know King as the dreamer in 1963, August 28, at the March on Washington. But King, um, at the Lorraine Motel, before he's assassinated on that balcony, um, uh, makes one last phone call from his hotel room. He, call, he calls back to his church, Ebenezer, where he tells his secretary, Dora McDonald, uh, what his sermon is going to be on Sunday morning. And had King made it back to Ebenezer, where, where he co-pastored with his father, Daddy King, for Sunday morning, as he always did, no matter where he was traveling during the week, he was home to preach on Sundays. The sermon topic he was going to preach from on Sunday morning had he made it back, was entitled Why America May Go to Hell. He didn't, mm. he didn't consign America to hell, but his theme was, his subject was going to be Sunday morning, Why America May Go to Hell. Now, you tell that to people who see him only as a dreamer and, and mm. think of the loftiness of that speech, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream, that we love him for, but he was going to preach a sermon five years later called Why America May Go to Hell. That dream for him had turned into a nightmare. So the critique of yeah. King oftentimes is he was too caught up in what he thought mm -hmm. America was capable of, uh, how mm -hmm. good he thought America could be. In that regard, I think Du Bois, which we'll discuss in this hour, may have suffered from the same thing. Du Bois thought that uh, if black folk just coalesced, if they came together, as, as Professor Williams said a moment ago, mm -hmm. and set aside their grievances, that might be the turning point for America. This is Du Bois in World War One, here we are in 2023. Yep. America still ain't made that turn. We're, we're, right. we're black folk are concerned. So we're going to interrogate when we come forward how this brilliant thinker, Du Bois, the first black to get a Ph.D. from Harvard. How did he get it so wrong? How did he so miscalculate what America was capable of even then, as I said a moment ago, that we ain't achieved yet? Just getting started in this conversation for the hour uh, with Professor Chad A. Williams. His book is called The Wounded World, W.B. Du Bois and the First World War. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. That's Tony Bennett. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580 because I'm in a Tony Bennett mood today. And uh, sometimes you have liberties as host that you can take. And uh, so uh, we play all kind of music around here as we go in and out of these uh, uh, segments. Uh, and so today, just giving you a little bit of Tony Bennett. Uh, changing it up for, for a bit around here. Uh, what has not changed, though, uh, is that we are continuing to have great conversations with great guests, uh, and this hour is no different. Uh, Professor Chad L. Williams is our guest in this hour. He's the author of a new book uh, about W.B. Du Bois. And uh, if you are like me, I love, uh, I'm a student, uh, always, a perennial student. I love to learn. 
And I particularly uh, love to learn uh, stories about those persons we think we know, but really don't know so well. And so it took Chad uh, Williams all these years later to bring us a, a story about Du Bois that we really don't know, something that Du Bois wrestled with for two decades of his life, uh, born of a decision that he made about which he was wrong. The book is called The Wounded World, W.B. Du Bois uh, and the First World War. Um, before I get back to the things I said, I wanted to probe in a moment here, Professor Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why call the book The Wounded World, The Wounded World? So the title of Du Bois's book was The Black Man and the Wounded World. Mm. Just this incredibly evocative title. And, you know, I took the liberties of, of stealing it from him. <laughs> but, I, but, I th- but I think the, the title is, is so poignant, and it really gets to the question that Du Bois is trying to wrestle with in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's a question that we continue to wrestle with today. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to live in a world that's wounded by war, by violence, by white supremacy, mm-hmm. by economic exploitation, by empire and colonialism? These are the questions that Du Bois was wrestling with so so difficultly in, in writing his book throughout the 1920s and 1930s are still the same questions that we're wrestling with today. No, that I didn't know where that answer was going, but that's a deep that's a deep response. We could spend hours just on that one formulation, just yeah. on that one notion of what it means for black people to navigate everyday lives in a wounded world, wounded in all the ways. Uh, that Professor Williams just lays out that Du Bois is wrestling with. That's a powerful, powerful formulation. Uh, the wounded world that we inhabit. Uh, we may come back to that somewhere later on this program. Um, yep. But that's uh, that's worthy of interrogation. Just just right there. I, I love that that frame. The wounded world. Um, let, let me let me start here again, broad, and we'll, we'll narrow as we move through. So we've already established that 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 Du Bois, for a couple of decades, as you detail in this in this text was wrestling with um, this decision he had made that turned out to be wrong. He thought that if black folk could coalesce, if we could set aside our legitimate grievances uh, on the advent of World War I, that that would be the moment that America might see us differently. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, a moment uh, that we could uh, navigate our way through that would allow America to perhaps see us differently, to to revel in our humanity, to, to, to respect our dignity. That's what Du Bois essentially thought. Uh, he realized over a couple of decades he was wrong about that, and so he was wounded. Speaking of the wounded world, he was yeah. wounded by his own decision, and he spends a couple of decades uh, trying to, to wrestle with it. So here's the big question. How did he get it so wrong? How did he so miscalculate what America was capable of, especially and even then? So... Travis, I know you're familiar with Du Bois's classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, yes. which he wrote in, in 1903. And in that book, he lays out this formulation of double consciousness, mm-hmm. right? This tension of being black on the one hand and being American on the other. And the desire, the longing that black people had to reconcile these two warring aspects of their identity. Du Bois felt that World War I was going to be the moment when those two warring ideals of being black and being American can be reconciled, Mm. when black people can fully be embraced 
as wholehearted, 100% Americans by supporting the war, by risking their lives on the battlefield. Uh, he had great reverence for the black military tradition, going back to the American Revolution, um, especially during the Civil War, um, the, the service of, of black soldiers in the Union Army, fighting for freedom, fighting for the destruction of slavery. He felt that World War One. And the service of black men in the United States Army was going to be the turning point right, in the struggle for African Americans to finally be fully American. And he was gravely wrong. Mm. He, he, let me, so let me, let me just interrogate um, Du Bois's thinking, and I'm in, interrogating his thinking through your interpretation uh, and your research of what he had to say in this manuscript. Uh, 800 plus pages that he never got out. So let me just let me just start down my list of questions. So uh, for a guy who was as brilliant and as enlightened as Du Bois, uh, I'm struck by how he got this wrong for a couple of reasons. Here's number one. Mm -hmm. Black folk, as you know, and as Du Bois knew, uh, have fought in every war this country ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, let me jump forward to World War Two to make a point and I'll come back. Uh, fighting in World War II to, to free the world against the extremism of, um, of, of Adolf Hitler, um, we find that black, uh, uh, black servicemen uh, have to ride on the back of the train coming out of Europe behind Nazi war criminals. They're not just sitting behind the white guys, uh, American soldiers who are white. They're sitting behind Nazi war criminals uh, coming back home um, uh, after that war um, in slavery. We've all seen the movie Glory uh, starring Denzel. Uh, and we saw the way that black soldiers retreated then. My point is that black men, black women, uh, black service persons, have, uh, black fellow citizens rather, have fought in every single war this country has ever had. Why then did Du Bois think that fighting in this particular war would make a difference? Well, I think Du Bois is looking back specifically at the, the Civil War. If you think of someone like Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. right, who during that war was one of the biggest proponents of African Americans volunteering for the Union Army, and he said, let the black man, I'm paraphrasing, let the black man put the, the brass letters U.S. on his chest, and no one can deny that he is a full American and deserves to be free. Mm -hmm. I think Du Bois is coming out of that, that tradition, uh, that tradition that links black military service with the acquisition of, of citizenship. Uh, so he felt that this was going to be a moment kind of akin to, to the Civil War, but even on a grander scale. Uh, du Bois, as I talk about in, in my book, is thinking about democracy not just for black folks in the United States, but for all peoples of African descent throughout the diaspora. He had a global vision of what this war mean, of, of what the war could potentially mean for, for black people. So he was incredibly hopeful, um, and you know we can get into a, a whole conversation just about the the meaning of hope yeah. <laughs> in African American uh, history. Um, but one of the the biggest challenges that I had in writing this book was to take Du Bois's hopes and and dreams seriously, uh, mm. even if they did not come to fruition. Uh, you say we can get into it. Let's get into it right now. Watching my clock, uh, <laughs> I, in about ninety seconds, we have to uh, do some news, traffic, and sports. But let me just tee this up. Uh, right now, speaking of hope, and we'll come to it on the other side. I've said this many times again, nothing new for this audience if they've been listening to me over any period of time of uh, my career. To my mind, hope and optimism are not the same thing. Optimism mm -hmm. suggests 
that there's a particular fact of uh, a particular set of facts, circumstances, or conditions. This is optimism now. Something you can see, feel, or touch that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. That has mm-hmm. never, even in the time of Du Bois, that has never been the experience of black folk in, in America. We have never had reason to be optimistic. There has never been a set of facts, circumstances, conditions, never a moment or there was anything we could see, feel, or touch that gave us reason to believe that things for us were going to be better. Harriet Tubman didn't mm-hmm. go back. She didn't go back all 19 times because she was optimistic. That's not why she went back. <laughs> so the issue of hope, though, is something fundamentally different. The Bible says that mm-hmm. faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm an example. You're an example. That we can build an entire life on hope. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, you know, hope is where we live. Hope is where black folk historically have always resided. So when we come forward, I want to hear you unpack for me what Du Bois's hopes were, but he could not have been optimistic. There there was no, there was nothing to look at in that moment that would give him reason to be optimistic. So what then was Du Bois so hopeful about regarding the future of black folk in America during World War One? What was he? What was what was he hopeful about? I want to hear that when we come forward. We're talking about the new book, The Wounded World. W. B. Du Bois and the First World War. The author of that book is Chad L. Williams, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. It's hard to step on that. For once, you put uh, Tony Bennett and Stevie Wonder together. (laughs) Man, one of Stevie's uh, greatest tracks. We were discussing with one of our guests the other day. Uh, was telling a story about how his father, his black father, taught him tenderness. And he was saying to us that his father used to play this song all the time. His father's favorite song was this track uh, by Stevie Wonder. When you think about how young Stevie was, Stevie's what, 24, 25? When he writes this song for Once in My Life, it comes out, what, what year was that, Miles? It comes out in 68. The album drops in 68. But listen, if you never really paid attention to that song, just listen to the lyrics of that particular track by Stephen Morris. Uh, and Stevie Wonder just, he did something with the lyrics to that song. So this brother was saying the other day that uh, it was his father's favorite song. Uh, and his daddy taught him tenderness, but he had him listening to Stevie Wonder every day to this particular track. So here comes Tony Bennett years later doing a duet with Stevie Wonder. Turn it up, Miles. Turn it up. Turn it up. I love that. Wow. Stevie Wonderful. Uh, great track from Tony Bennett and um, and Stevie Wonder. Uh, we continue our conversation now in this hour with the author of the book, The Wounded World, W.B. Du Bois and the First World War, Chad L. Williams. We've been discussing in this hour uh, at least one time <laughs> in Du Bois' life where he got something wrong. Uh, thinking that if black folk could set aside their grievances and coalesce and come together and fight to defend America in World War One, America might see us differently. He might revel and respect our humanity and our dignity. He got it wrong, uh, and he wrestled with that uh, wrong decision uh, for 20 years of his life. And in fact, as you all know, um, Du Bois eventually gave up on America uh, and moved to Accra. He died in Ghana, and a, a piece of black history here. Uh, because there were no cell phones, there was no there was no texting and uh, and uh, quick messaging back then. Uh, du Bois dies in Ghana, and the word doesn't arrive uh, until uh, much later back to these United States. And they literally uh, made the announcement: A. Philip Randolph, 
uh, makes the announcement at the March on Washington before Dr. King speaks that Du Bois, the great black intellectual, has passed away in Accra, Ghana. How about that for a story? That they announced it to the nation and to black people during the March on Washington. What a great story uh, uh, about the uh, life and times of, uh, of W.B. Du Bois. So I was saying to Professor Williams for the break, where well, he started this notion of hope first and Du Bois' hopes, <laughs> and I, I chime in with my distinction between hope and optimism. Take that anywhere you want to go, whether you agree or disagree yeah. with me, and then tell me about Du Bois' hopes. Yeah, I think that's a, a great formulation. And Du Bois struggled to reconcile his hope uh, with optimism. Mm. Uh, throughout the war, he was searching desperately for, for glimmers uh, of optimism, uh, really putting his faith in the service of black soldiers specifically. That was really the source of his optimism, that they were going to, to be valiant warriors on, on the battlefield and come away with a, uh, a proven record of, of heroism and service and sacrifice. And those, those, that optimism is quickly dashed. He travels to France immediately after the armistice. He talks to black soldiers and officers, hearing directly from their mouths about the horrific racial discrimination mm. and institutionalized white supremacy that they experienced in the American army. He sees the, the Western Front, the devastation of the war firsthand, you know, with his, with his eyes. You know, he's literally in the trenches. He's literally in the camps with these men, and he sees how horrific the war was for himself. He comes back to the United States during the summer of 1919, what James Weldon Johnson called the Red Summer of 1919, where you have race riots taking place all over the country, Washington, D.C., Chicago, massacres in, in Arkansas, black veterans being lynched, some still in their uniform. So Du Bois has to reckon with this, and his optimism quickly becomes disillusionment to the point where he's actually writing in his book, and I'm, and I'm quoting his words directly, the Great War was a scourge, an evil, a retrogression to barbarism, a waste, a wholesale murder. That's the conclusion that he ultimately comes to. Mm. That's a serious reckoning. That's a serious reckoning for a scholar uh, of his uh, his magnitude and his ilk to have to, to, to hear that and to, to deal with it and to process it. Before I ask you a question specifically about his conversations with black soldiers, uh, t tell me about this photo of Du Bois on the cover of the book. So the, the photo on the cover is actually Du Bois in France. Uh, mm -hmm. I found that in, in, my, uh, in my research in the archives, and this was a photo uh, that I believe he took in January of 1919 uh, in one of the American army camps uh, in France. And it's such an amazing photo. No one had ever seen it before, uh, the first time that it's been published. And it just really reflects um, how personal um, the war was for, for Du Bois. No, it's, it's a powerful, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful portrait. Uh, but it's a it's a powerful uh, uh, photo um, juxtaposed against the title of the book, uh, the look on his face, the hat on his head. It's uh, the helmet. It's uh, it's quite a photo. I want to ask about it because it, 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 it got me when I first looked at it. Um, yeah. Let me go now back to your comments of a moment ago about what Du Bois learned uh, and how he had to, again, juxtapose what he felt this moment could be and what he was hearing in real time from these African-American, these black soldiers. How yeah. did he process that, Professor Williams? Uh, quite frankly, it was shocking. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't prepared to hear 
the stories uh, that came out of their mouths uh, about being Jim Crowed, uh, about being slandered, about being accused of being rapists, uh, described as, as monkeys hiding their tails underneath their uniforms. Mm. Uh, many of these men Du Bois knew personally, um, and he had a very close connection to them. So for, for him to hear their stories um, and for them to invest their, their hopes that he was going to write their history for them and tell the truth about what they experienced uh, was, was incredibly powerful for, for Du Bois. Uh, we tend to think of Du Bois kind of as the cool, calm, detached uh, intellectual, but this was deeply personal for him. Um, and as I argue in the book, it was that close personal connection to the war and his own complicated relationship to it which ultimately prevented him from being able to to finish this book in all of its magnitude. Yeah. Was there a moment for Du Bois where he realized, okay, I, I just got this flat wrong? Or uh, was it sort of rolling? Did, did, did he come to that conclusion over time that he was wrong and had miscalculated the capacity that America had for reveling in the humanity and dignity of black people? Yeah, it was certainly a process that took place over time. Uh, du Bois had a tremendous ego, <laughs> yeah. and, and he, <laughs> he refused to, to ever admit that he was wrong. Um, but as I talk about in the book, there are moments where he's writing to, to different individuals, even in some of his published works, where he's saying that he was ashamed of his lack of foresight, uh, that he made the mistake of, of getting swept up into the propaganda of one world war. He's saying this by the time World War II is on the horizon. Um, and he had lived to, to know better. So one of the most powerful themes that really came out of my research and I talk about in the book is Du Bois' reckoning with his own sense of guilt uh, and shame about supporting the war and ultimately how that uh, shapes uh, his, his failure uh, to, to complete his book. When we come forward, we'll go right to that uh, and uh, get a better understanding of how, in fact, he wrestled with this reckoning that he had to endure about his own guilt, his own shame, his own um, uh, disappointment that he lacked foresight and uh, just gave America a great deal more credit than she deserved, particularly at that time. We're talking with Chad L. Williams, author of the new book, The Wounded World, W.B. Du Bois and the First World War. You're listening to Professor Williams right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. And get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. forward. Professor Williams, um, it, it's... <laughs> I was thinking uh, about our conversation in this hour, and it, it's it's challenging um, to think of uh, what Du Bois had to wrestle with. Uh, and I don't want to say, you know, feel sorry for him, because I, I, I don't believe that Du Bois uh, wants, deserves, ever wanted in his lifetime our sympathy. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm trying to feel, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how empathetic I should be. How empathetic should I be about the fact that Du Bois just missed the mark on this. Yeah. Yeah, I think well, hopefully one of the takeaways from, from my book that readers will have is to view Du Bois, as we were saying earlier, a, a deeply human individual mm-hmm. um, and, and feel a sense of empathy for him. But I think, you know, Du Bois is wrestling with a, with a question that, that black folks are still wrestling with today. You know, what does it mean to be loyal 
to a country that is not loyal to you? Mm. Uh, what, what does it mean to try and prove your, your worth uh, when your country despises you? Uh, that was something that Du Bois uh, wrestled with uh, really throughout his, his entire life. Um, and I, I think we can feel a sense of, of empathy for him in trying to, to, to make sense of that, that dilemma because we're still living with it today. Yep. So to your earlier point, how ashamed was he uh, by his lack of foresight? He was deeply ashamed. And one of the, the questions I had to ask myself in writing the book is, how does Du Bois change over time? How does this man, who in 1917 is encouraging African Americans to support the war, by 1951, at 83 years old, the federal government is going to throw him in jail for being an anti-war activist. He becomes a fierce anti-war activist in his later years, and part of that transformation, I argue, in the book is because of his reckoning with, with World War I. Mm. But you can't throw Du Bois in jail. This is Du Bois. <laughs> they were ready to throw him in jail. <laughs> yeah. Our, the, the federal government was ready to put him in jail, absolutely. T- tell me more about that right quick. Uh, so by uh, the 1950s, after World War II, um, at the height of the Cold War, the atomic arms race, uh, Du Bois becomes uh, one of the uh, leading voices uh, in the peace movement. Um, and he uh, is, is part of an organization. It's called the Peace Information Center, very short-lived. And the government went after him, uh, charged him with being an agent of a foreign principle, basically advocating on behalf of, of the Soviet Union. Um, and they brought him up on federal charges. Uh, he was ultimately uh, acquitted. The judge threw out the case because it was completely without merit. Uh, but Du Bois reflected on this experience as, as one of the most painful moments in his life uh, that his own country, uh, that he believed in, uh, was, was willing to, to throw him uh, in jail. And in part, that was kind of the, the exclamation point on his disillusionment with America. And as you said, he ultimately leaves uh, the United States in 1961 for Ghana. Yeah, they, they, they kicked Marcus Garvey out. We talked about that earlier this week. This is the 100th anniversary. Yeah, they went, they went after him, too. Exactly. Yeah. This is the 100th anniversary of, uh, of Marcus Garvey uh, and uh, his UNIA movement um, basically losing momentum and falling apart after he was brought up on some bogus charges, but they ended up kicking Marcus, Marcus Garvey out. Du Bois said, I'm checking out. You ain't going to kick me out. I'm checking out. And the brother packed his bags and left for Ghana, uh, where he uh, died and eventually made his transition. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Professor Chad L. Williams, uh, I want to, to close uh, with an issue raised earlier in this conversation, and he just raised it again uh, in a different context. But, uh, this notion of what it means uh, to be black and American and how, if ever, we can reconcile those two things, this double consciousness uh, that Du Bois wrote about. And you heard Professor Williams say a moment ago, uh, Du Bois wrestling with this loyalty, this issue of rather how you can be loyal to a country that ain't loyal to you. Du Bois is wrestling with these countries, wrestling rather with these issues in this country uh, back around World War One. I wonder how he might process today that we are still wrestling, as Professor Williams said, with this notion of being loyal to a country that ain't loyal to us, how we reconcile being black and American, how we deal today, even still, with a double consciousness. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Chad L. Williams on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, As we've been discussing in this hour, his book, It's called The Wounded World, W.B. Du Bois and the First World War. In three minutes left, uh, let me offer this as uh, perhaps the exit question. 
certainly one of them, uh, Professor Williams, and that is this notion of uh, being black and being American, how we reconcile those two things, this notion of uh, this Du Boisian notion of uh, double consciousness. And this issue you raised moments ago about being loyal to a country that ain't always loyal to us. And that was Du Bois then. I wonder how he might process in 2023 that we are still wrestling with those same questions, sir. Yeah, I think Du Bois would would recognize that it's an enduring tension, uh, that the ingrained nature of racism and white supremacy uh, in this country makes it such that African Americans will continue uh, to reckon with those two warring ideals of their identity, of being black and being American. Uh, if, he were, if Du Bois was with us today, he would be at the forefront of all of our movements for racial justice. Uh, he would be at the forefront of fighting for the teaching of, of black history. He would be fighting for workers' rights. Uh, he would be at the forefront of the anti-war uh, movement. Uh, but he would also uh, recognize uh, that, that black people um, will need to, to fight. Uh, their their struggles on their own terms and not be blindly naive about what America can do for them. Mm-hmm. What were his takeaways uh, to your mind um, from his uh, his uh, his anti-war activism? Yeah, I think this is a really important part of Du Bois's life and legacy that we don't know much about, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully my book will will illuminate uh, some of that. Uh, he believed uh, that war was not the answer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, it's a remarkable transformation from where he is in, in World War One uh, to to being a, a fierce anti-war activist. Similar to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, again, the, the the connections between them, where King is in 1968, coming out against uh, the Vietnam War, he looked to Du Bois as inspiration, as an example uh, of someone who fought for his, his beliefs and principles uh, in the face of tremendous odds. No question about it. King gives a speech one night um, uh, in Atlanta, as I recall, I write about it in my King text, where he uh, just just does a wonderful tribute. Uh, to Du Bois. No, not in Atlanta. I'm sorry. They were doing a big tribute to Du Bois in 68 at Carnegie in Hall. York, yeah. yeah, at Carnegie yeah. Hall. Yeah, yeah, that's what it, it, it just comes back to me. Uh, I'm glad you're the scholar. You corrected me on that because you know as well as I do. So, <laughs> yeah, King was uh, almost missed the flight. Uh, I, I had to catch the second and third flight. Mm. He was so busy, but he did not want to miss this tribute to Du Bois at Carnegie Hall. And if you read um, yeah, what, what King... It is a brilliant speech. What King said about Du Bois that night on the stage at Carnegie Hall. Lord Jesus. Uh, in any event, Chad Williams is the uh, Samuel J. and Augusta Specter, a professor of history and African African and African American studies at Brandeis University. Uh, his new book is called The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. What a powerful conversation. What a rich dialogue. This has been Professor Williams in this hour. I thank you for the book. I thank you for your work. I thank you for this conversation, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for your support. Good to have you on. Our three of Tavis, my name, we'll talk to a, a, a different kind of black man, one who attends KKK rallies. We'll talk to Daryl Davis in a moment on KBLA Talk 15.